Welcome back, dear friends and listeners, to another episode of the Oxford Policy Podcast. My name is Nick Fabry, and I'll be your host for today. I'm a co-producer of the show, with a background in the humanitarian sector, government, and the military in Australia. It's a great honour to be joined today by Lord Michael Heseltine. Lord Heseltine has had a remarkable life and career in British politics, serving as Deputy Prime Minister in the mid-1990s under John Major, as well as a Cabinet Minister in a variety of portfolios in the Thatcher and Heath administrations, having entered the House of Commons in 1966. He's also had a fascinating life in business, civil society and philanthropy, as well as gardening, with his renowned Thenford Arboretum and Gardens winning international acclaim. So thank you so much for your time today, Lord Heseltine. It's an honour to have you on the show. Uh, Great pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So I heard you speak at Jesus College some weeks ago at an event run by Oxford Speaks. It may seem like an odd place to start an interview on, on a public policy podcast, but as a keen gardener myself, I was struck by your insistence that you hoped and thought you'd be most remembered for your gardening. So could you tell us a bit about Thenford, the Arboretum and Gardens, and how it's looking now as we head towards spring, and what it is that you love about gardening? Well, I've had three careers, politics, business, and gardening. But looking back, my view is clear that if anything, they'll remember me for my garden. You look back at the 19th century, how many politicians can you remember? A couple of prime ministers here or there. So, <clears throat> excuse me, so I, I take a very simple view. My trees will last, and uh, so they should. Uh, <laughs> Like most of life, it was more or less luck that uh, first introduced me to the gardening that I now um, so care about. Uh, I went away to school at the age of nine, and the headmaster gave every new boy a square yard of mud and a packet of Virginia stock seeds. I spread the seeds methodically across the square yard of mud and six weeks later I had a sea of colour. I was a gardener. Well, of course it developed from there. My parents had a a nice garden on the suburbs of Swansea, about two acres, but it was very much a domestic garden, lupins, delphiniums, that sort of thing. It wasn't until... um, the 1970s, um, 10 years after I'd been elected to the House of Commons, that my wife and I knew where we would spend the rest of our life because my political career had meant there was no certainty as to where I would end up uh, as a member of parliament. And until I had that certainty, I, I couldn't be sure where the roots could be put down. Well, having been selected uh, as the candidate for Henley, that uncertainty uh, came to an end. And uh, we found the house we were looking for, very important, the house. We were looking for a high-quality piece of Georgian architecture. We assumed there'd be a garden, but we didn't uh, uh, give much thought to it. We found the house, and there was um, a, a very ordinary garden in the immediate environments of the house. But surrounding the the house was a woodland of about 70 acres. And uh, that was in a bad way. It had barely been left to go. So little by little, we began to clear 
And perhaps the most formative experience of, of all was my introduction to a man called Harold Hillier, who was one of the great plantsmen of the uh, period. And uh, I asked his advice as to what would grow here, because I didn't know. And he produced a, an extensive list of trees and shrubs. And I, I said, okay, fine, I'll have them. And I'll line them all up in, in the wall garden until I'm able to plant them out. Um, what I didn't realize is that he had sold me a collection. That instead of the more obvious uh, Quercus roba, the common English oak, he'd sold me five or six different oaks, half a dozen different viburnum, a few willows, um, some different aces. So when I came to understand what I'd got, it was a very easy step to realize that this was a beginning. And now we have over 4,000 different types of trees and shrubs. Um, you asked me at the beginning where we are now. Well, we've just been awarded a national collection status of snowdrops. So we have the, something nearly a thousand different snowdrops here. And they're nearly over now, but they have been fantastic. And uh, they've attracted a lot of attention. Uh, the, the early spring flowers are now beginning to replace them. Wonderful cyclamen coom, primroses. Um, yes. The next will be the anemone blander. Uh, it's all beginning to show life, that very exciting moment in the garden when things begin to create that extraordinary excitement in the springtime. Fantastic. Well, I very much look forward to visiting at some stage while I'm over here. Um, I think Australia has inherited a wonderful um, tradition of gardening from, from, from the English, I think, and uh, we have uh, some amazing gardens back home in Victoria like Paul Bungay's Stonefields and things, and they uh, are very much inspired by, I think, what happens over here in, in England. So turning now to, to Oxford and your time here as a student, um, you studied here at Pembroke College in the early 1950s and became president of the Oxford Union in 1954, which I think you've described as being the first step to becoming prime minister. So could you take us back to that time in the early 1950s and give us a sense of how different life here was 70 years ago in the shadows of World War II and what feels the same and different as you revisit Oxford today? Well, there's no doubt, <coughs> excuse me, there's no doubt that Oxford was one of the most formative experiences of my life. And really, I came from a conventional middle-class background, uh, broadly conservative, uh, relatively prosperous compared with many people. And um, a, a public schoolboy. I was meeting, living amongst, being friends with people very much from my own background. Oxford, of course, changed all that. For the first time, one was really uh, with one's peer group of in a generation of all the talents and many different races, it was an invigorating and exciting, eye-opening experience. And I treasure those three years I spent at Oxford. I got involved in Oxford politics. On the day I arrived at Oxford, I joined the union 
joined the University Conservative Association and the City of Oxford Conservative Association. So uh, it was quite obvious mm. where my inclinations were. And that, that really was the guiding theme of my Oxford career, the, the involvement in student politics, ending up as president of the union, having been secretary and treasurer. The treasurership was very important in my life because for the first time I became very aware of the dilemma that faces any business that's in trouble. Um, and the union was in trouble with membership. The, the argument's always the same. Right. Cut your cloth to what you can afford. That's the wise view. The other view is give a better deal. Offer the customer something more attractive. Invest for the future. I belong to the latter, the classic entrepreneurial stand. And as treasurer, I introduced a number of reforms which actually had the effect of achieving the extra membership that we needed. What are some of your, your fond memories of, of your time here and, and maybe you know, pubs you might have visited or college bops if you had them? What, what kind of stands out in the, in the memory bank for you about Oxford? Uh, my memories are focused on the people. The friends I made there uh, remained with me for life. Uh, the experiences were relevant for life. Um, and it was the, the intellectual stimulus of a generation of young people from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of interests and all sorts of ambitions interwoven with everyday life. People of such talent and energy and enthusiasm. It was an enriching experience beyond measure, beyond privilege. And to be president of the Oxford Union, well, someone once said, I think, of the head boy of Eton, you are greater now than ever I can make you. And there's an element of that about being president of the Oxford Union. You are singled out before your time uh, to, to hold a position which, of course, has been such a remarkable part of the career of so many people. Hmm. And during your talk the other week, I was um, struck by your personal reminiscences of working alongside political figures, such as Prime Minister Ted Heath, Margaret Thatcher and John Major, whom you work with as Deputy Prime Minister. So could you talk a bit about the personal and leadership qualities, both good and bad, that stand out most for you when thinking of each of those leaders, which the public aren't, aren't privy to outside Whitehall? The one thing you must not do is generalise, because those three people were totally different in their character and in their approach. Um, Ted was a difficult man, and um, he was a man of few words, and he could be quite brusque. Um, I remember as a junior minister once being on the wrong end of his tongue, and I went to complain to one of his uh, uh, senior uh, aides, and to which the reply was, oh, yes, join the club. We all get that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, he, he, one mustn't underestimate Ted took 
this country into the European community. That was a huge political achievement. The vision was that of Harold Macmillan, but the achievement was that of Ted Heath. And for my generation, that was the critical moment. Uh, I remember when I first met my wife saying, you must come and listen to this man, Ted Heath. He's the future of our party. Uh, Margaret, totally different person, um, although uh, she shared the same sort of background. Um, uh, and um, this was part of a social revolution in the Conservative Party, that people from that sort of background would, had, could rise to the leadership of the party. Um, she, she really reacted hmm. in a very predictable way to most political thoughts. They came, I, I can, I, it's a rather odd thing to say, but they came from the gut. Um, and a lot of what she reacted to, one didn't like. She didn't like foreigners much. <laughs> right. um, and, and she was pretty suspicious of anybody who hadn't actually made a mark for themselves. Um, so, but, but she had a very fine mind. And what you had to learn, which was pretty uncomfortable for someone from my background, is that you had to stand up to this woman. Um, I, I remember quite vividly in cabinet, if you were responsible for presenting a paper, she'd interrupt you within minutes of you starting. And uh, if you let her get away with it, well, frankly, it was the beginning of the end of your political career. So you had to wait until she paused for breath and start again. And she'll do it again. She would do it again. So you waited and you started again. And in the end, she had to listen. And uh, in my relationships with her, which was, a, although it came to tears in the end, but, but consistently as her, one of her colleagues and uh, one of her cabinet ministers, she backed me in the policies I wanted yeah. to pursue when they were controversial and often in disagreement with her, my political colleagues. But Margaret backed me. John... Again, a, a much more emollient character, and um, he always listened and was punctilious in the care that he uh, took to try and embrace um, a consensus of view. Uh, he had strong views himself, but he was he was he was a listening leader, and that in, that's a very considerable uh, um, attractive quality. Um, uh, so our relationship, uh, I think, was was a very good one. Uh, I saw my job as Deputy Prime Minister to be an extension of his power, and I made sure I never moved without knowing exactly what his views were. Um, and, and I think he came to appreciate that. That's why he made me Deputy mm. Prime Minister. And just thinking to today, and the Tory party having been in power for, for you know 13 years now, there's a lot of criticism um, here in the UK, but also across the Western world about the quality of leadership um, in our political parties. Um, and you only have to look at the revolving door of, of Conservative Party leaders here recently with uh, Cameron, May, Johnson, Liz Truss, and now Rishi Sunak. I mean, it is extraordinary to think about, I suppose, the pressures that those leaders are under in a contemporary sense. And I often 
think about it, you know, comparing them to the titans of the names of, you know, Heath, Thatcher and Major, as controversial as, as some of them have been, obviously, historically, and even, you know, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Do you think that there's something changed, and I suppose, in the quality of political leadership in this country? i tell you what has changed. It's the economic background that the um, period that we're talking about has largely been won against an economic period of depression. And uh, in that circumstance, leaders are under pressure because people are fed up and they want change. And there's now been a, a, a prolonged period in which their aspirations to raise their living standards have not been met. So then the, the issue develops as, well, whose fault is it? And there have been some extraordinarily unfortunate developments in not just in this yeah. country, but in the world, because uh, across the Western world, immigration and race has become one of the tools to which the extremists turn in order to find someone to blame. You can add to that the civil servants. And in this country, of course, you can add to the queue Europe and Brussels, all of which are easy targets. And it has been the tragedy of the Tory party in recent years that they have been part of a process of putting the agenda of blame at the feet of either Europe or immigrants, uh, as though if you could have, if you had power, you would be able to solve these problems. Of course, now they have got power in this country and they haven't solved problems, which makes it very difficult for them. One of the commonest arguments you hear today is, oh, Brexit hasn't failed, it's just been never given a chance. The truth is, Brexit was always going to fail. You cut yourself off from your principal market, there's a price to pay. And anyone who, who has any idea of how commerce and trade works knew that in mm. advance. So I do want to come to the question of, of Brexit, of immigration, of race um, in the UK uh, later in the interview. But firstly, I'd like to, to turn to the legacy of, of Thatcher and Thatcherism today as, I suppose, maybe um, a bit of a starting point for that sort of – for modern Britain, at least economically. And, you know, thinking about the, the problems which you just cited – the country is in economically, you know, due to some external factors, obviously, like the, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine and inflation generally and, and so on. But um, in terms of Thatcherism, at least from down under in Australia, you know, no other British political figure, apart from Churchill, is so widely known, nor more widely reviled in some sections of the population, particularly with people of, who kind of emigrated to Australia in the 80s and 90s and have, you know, memory of, 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 of Margaret. Um, as you as you call her. Um, so for the first seven years of that government, you were the spearhead of a lot of the Thatcherist agenda and her core controversial policies, as you say, even touted as her successor before you both clashed over Europe, defence and cabinet processes in 1986. So how do you assess the legacy of Thatcherism today over the last 40 years and the way in which reform was implemented at the time? And what do you make of the pain that a lot of communities experienced um, at the time, but in the 90s too, from you know growth in relative poverty, unemployment, and and the closure of historical industries like like coal and, and mining and things like that as well. You have to see the context of Thatcher as a prime minister to realise what she did 
and why. Her biggest single achievements were undoubtedly the reform of the trade unions, the single market in Europe, and the privatization uh, policies. If we look at those three, the post-war governments of all parties had failed to cope with the rise of militant left-wing union pressure. The first government to recognize this was Harold Wilson's government in 1968, when it produced a white paper, a document called In Place of Strife, which analyzed the problems and um, then ran away from any solutions because the party was divided. It fell to the conservative government under Ted Heath to try to find a way of healing the wounds, if you like, or bridging the, the political divide. And, of course, as everybody knows, it ended with the defeat of that government in 1974 uh, as a result of the miners' strike. Of course, the truth is the government was finished in 1973 because of the price of oil uh, crisis, which completely undermined the economy and people's living standards. So uh, although the, 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 the actual battleground was fought over uh, the miners' issue, it wasn't the miners that was really the problem. It was the, uh, uh, the, the cost of living. And if anything, if anything, the miners nearly gave us a card which could have enabled us to win an election on the basis of who governs. Um, the next Labour government was destroyed by the same controversies. The winter of discontent in 1978, when Mr. Callaghan was Prime Minister, uh, saw uh, such acute public sector strikes that the, 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 the undertakers couldn't even bury the dead. So when the Conservative government came back in 1979, which I was a member, we were actually very much the same people who'd been Ted Heath's government five years before. It was like Ted's army given a second chance. And we knew exactly what had to be done. We had to confront the issue, and we mm -hmm. did, and uh, quite rightly so. Um, so that was the, the right historic context and the right answer to a very difficult social and economic problem. Margaret's second great achievement, well, she didn't like foreigners, and um, but she had been in support of uh, Britain joining the Europeans. Um, in the mid-80s, uh, she was confronted with the desire in Europe to move forward, to create a single market uh, with all the economic benefits. And she knew perfectly well from her experience of what had happened after the war when France and Germany had created a social and economic policy to suit their economies, that if Britain didn't play a role this time, which we hadn't last time, then they would fix it their way. And quite, what else would you expect mm. them to do? So Margaret took a very positive view and sent Arthur Cofield to negotiate the single market with Britain's interests as much in mind as everybody else's. And it was a very considerable success. Um, so that was Margaret, the thinking prime minister. Of course, the changes were all in detail 
new forms for hundreds, thousands of new regulations. And they all hit the small businessman as the economy was in some difficulties in the late 80s. And Margaret began to waver and started looking for someone to blame. And, of course, Brussels was the easy thing to do. So Euroscepticism was born of those very difficult circumstances. But uh, let's have no illusions. It was a huge achievement to have got the single market, as she did. Privatization... Uh, well, I think I privatized more individual parts of the state than any other minister. The biggest of them all was the sale of council houses. And that, of course, again, actually was announced under Ted Heath in 1974 um, and implemented uh, under Mrs. Thatcher in 1979. Well, that's when we began the implementation. Um, there were other significant uh, privatization measures. I, I was responsible for quite a few of them, um, but they helped transform the economy. Um, and there is, I have no doubt at all that regulated capitalism is um, the most effective way of encouraging um, dynamism, encouraging investment, encouraging ownership. Uh, and a spread of wealth in society. I, I agree that obviously, you know, a lot of the reforms were, were probably necessary in terms of it, you know encouraging you know um, reallocation of resources into you know more productive areas of the economy. The UK is now, I think, over an eighty percent services oriented economy. Um, you know, people are out of you know mines and, and factories, and now in the information economy, which, which is a good thing. Um, I think in terms of overall. Well-being, not not totally um, forsaking and abandoning, you know, a country's autonomous industrial base or manufacturing capacity, um, which I think is really important in terms of of national resilience. But Australia underwent kind of similar reforms in the 1980s under the Hawke and Keating administration, whom you obviously would have probably worked with or been aware of. But I think the approach in implementation seems to me to be quite an interesting case study of, of differences, right? I mean, there was none of the, the major, I guess, unrest that you might have seen, you know, like the opposition to to the poll tax, for instance, which I know you opposed and ultimately got off the table, but certainly to closures of mines and things and some labour market reforms, productivity reforms too. And I think the, the, the approach of the Labour government, and maybe it's something that Labour governments can do because of their linkages with the unions, et cetera, and, and organised labour, was, you know, a, approach of, they called it the the accord of sitting down with like you know business government and and the unions as well to sort of drive through a consensus based approach to reform. Do you think that the approach adopted by Thatcher and and, and your government as well in some of these um, maybe necessary policy policy reforms um, could have been sort of done in a in a way which didn't lead to I guess a lot of the, the you know the, the rancor that you 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 see today towards Margaret Thatcher's name and 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 the historical memory of her government. Well, you see, I think I've answered your question in a sense. Uh, the confrontation argument yeah. to your questioning, um, uh, that was the inevitable result of what happened to Labour governments, that uh, this was not anti-Thatcher or anti-Tory. This was anti-anything that stood mm-hmm. in the way of trade union power. And if it happened to be a Labour government, it had to be a Labour government um, that, that was confronted. So there was a problem at the heart of the way this country was working or not working. 
And I, I think that there was no doubt at all that the government that was elected in 79 was experienced in these matters and knew what had to happen. Yes, it was uncomfortable, but the, the mere demonstration of how uncomfortable it was, and you have to look now at the films of the riots and the protests and the, all of that to realize that the extreme feelings on the left and the lengths to which they would go um, to realize that this matter had to be brought to a head. Um, on the coal mine, yes, that was a very difficult situation. Um, there were three quarters of a million people employed after the war in the coal mining industry. By the time I was responsible, there were 30,000. And under all governments, mines ran out of coal. And by the time that uh, I was responsible, it was much cheaper to import coal into this country than to mine it. And um, uh, we, the, the uh, uh, electricity industries had been privatized. They had the duty to their shareholders and to their customers to provide the electricity at the most competitive price. And they weren't prepared to subsidize mm. coal mining. So I had the lonely decision to close the rest of the mines. I think that we got a very good deal for the miners. The, uh, they each got about £30,000. In those days, money was quite a lot of money. And, of course, the extraordinary thing today, if you look at the coal mining industry areas, constituencies, significant numbers of them have now voted Conservative. So um, ending coal mining, uh, very difficult, uh, socially stretching, but desirable in the outcome because it was a dirty, dangerous industry. Fascinating. So in a number of interviews, you've touted your conservative approach to public policy solutions, championing free enterprise, privatisation, removing red tape and regulations, and creating certainty for investors. And you often cite Liverpool and your work in regenerating that city is a shining example of this sort of pragmatic approach to well, urban regeneration and economic revitalization. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about your work um, transforming Liverpool in the 1980s and I suppose what lessons that might have for uh, you know, the British economy um, and urban scapes today? I, yeah, I remember the experience extremely well and it, it had the most profound effect on me. Um, basically, I became responsible for Liverpool in 1979 uh, as a new Secretary of State. And um, I, in the two years that I intervened before the riots, I did some things I thought were materially helpful. Uh, I, I set up a development corporation in order to get rid of toxicity on the banks of the Mersey. I created a, a, a massive reclamation program to green areas on the banks of the Mersey in order to make it fit for development. Uh, I created public-private sector partnerships, um, and I thought I'd done a reasonable job. And then they rioted in 1981. And I said to Margaret, look, the first responsibility of a conservative government is law and order. We have to back the police. But I think there's something more profound at work here. And I want your agreement that I walk the streets and listen 
and report back to you. And she agreed. Quite interesting that because that was probably the most interventionist thing you could conceivably have done. This was not free market economics standing back and let the market rule. This was intervention of a cabinet minister walking the streets of a big city. I did mm. for two or three days, and people were very generous. How nice of you to come. Last, somebody's listening. But then on the third day, someone said, what are you going to do about it? And I realized that I had... I hadn't got the option to say, well, how nice, I've enjoyed myself and I'll think about it, because I would have been panned. Um, so I had to try and think of something to do. And I produced a list of 30 things that I thought could be done that would transform the psychology uh, of prevailing at the time, which was one of nothing works, nothing, nobody cares. So I thought, well, I'll show you that you can achieve things and people can care and they can work together. And uh, of course, that was quite well received. But the next problem was, who's going to do it? Because there was no leadership there. And I realized there was no choice. I had to do it. So for 18 months, I had a team of secondees from the public and private sector. And I went back every Thursday to check progress, and troubleshoot on the Friday anything that was getting in the way of achieving what we wanted. Uh, and it, it completely reorientated my approach to domestic politics because I realized that here was a great city which had no powers of its own. It was all totally dependent upon the central power uh, of Whitehall in London. And worse than that, in London the power was spread, spread by about 10 different departments, health, education, transport, treasury, homes, you name it. There were different departments. And they never coordinated their policies. So you had officials devising policies of a general nature, completely oblivious of the very different circumstances of places like Manchester and Birmingham, Newcastle, uh, Sheffield, they, they, this was it was completely wrong to have a central set of compartmentalized policies when actually what you wanted was powerful local elected mayors, as basically you have in all other capitalist economies, devising local strategies based on local circumstances, on local opportunities and uh, strengths. So I became deeply committed to the devolution agenda which I, when I went, um, uh, David Cameron brought me back to help the government and I produced a report called No Stone Unturned, which set out this journey. And, and the journey is half complete, but the trouble is it's a very unpopular journey because it, so, it confronts so many vested interests, so many power bases, all of whom resist giving up their power. But under David Cameron, George Osborne and Greg Clark, a very significant step was made. And now about half of urban England is under um, mayoral elected authorities with considerable powers of their own. Not enough, but certainly a major change. And, and that has been one of the most satisfying experiences of my life. And you've said... Going from that example of, of, of Liverpool as a, an example of an interventionist uh, 
you know, success story, you've, you've said that no other British politician has privatised more state assets or quangos, quasi-governmental organisations, than you have, and you're writing a book on your role in privatisation. I'm curious as to why you're such a staunch defender of, of, of this sort of area of, of politics and economic reform when privatisation is such a dirty word across the Western world. Um, in my own home state in, in New South Wales, there have been outright um, pledges by the incoming Labor, Labor government, for instance, to, to not um, sell off any further state assets. So what do you think, looking back on your 40 years, um, you know, since a lot of these major reforms in the 80s and 90s, what do you think are the benefits of asset recycling and privatisation for the community that I suppose a lot of people don't necessarily feel on the ground at the moment with, with you know, rising electricity prices, the, the, the degradation in rail services, etc.? Well, start with the sale of council houses. This was a major transfer of wealth from the public sector to the private sector, and it enabled a generation of people who would never have been able to afford their homes uh, to become owners. That was a massive step in a constructive direction and was very instrumental in helping us to win the 1983 general election. Uh, But uh, other things I did, um, small things, uh, were the uh, um, the, the laboratory of the government chemist. Uh, There were were, uh, various advisory services of government that I privatized. Uh, And of course, in the end, there were the uh, the, the rest of the coal industry. Uh, and nobody suggested bringing the coal industry back into public ownership. Um, so um, basically, uh, I believe in a free enterprise society because it, it, it is the most effective way of allocating economic resource. I also believe in a regulated community, and that's why you never hear me uh, using the language of uh, red tape and civil servants and get off our backs and all that. Uh, the, 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 the civil service, regulation, red tape is actually what stands between our present civilized society and the rule of the jungle. Uh, without civil servants, without regulation, you are just allowing the, the most evil and the most powerful to do what the hell they like to everybody else. If you think about health, fire, all the dangers of life, they are subject to regulation and quite rightly so. And so um, you have to have a a government which has the sense to understand the desirability of regulation, uh, but the sense also to make it as practical as can be done to allow enterprise to flourish within it. Mm. So turning now to the question of, of Britain and multiculturalism, which you raised earlier in the conversation today, the, 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 the question of migration and multiculturalism has seized British politics and public opinion for over two decades now, uh, similar to the rest of the Western world, frankly, um, and has led to the tectonic shifts we've seen like Brexit in 2016 or the election of Donald Trump also in 2016. And so you've always been a strong conservative defender of both immigration and multiculturalism as, I think, moral but also economic and societal imperatives. And you gave a famous and principled response to Enoch Powell's 1968 Rivers of Blood speech, which railed against multiculturalism um, and the loss of British identity, as he saw it. 
So could you, could you give us the story behind that speech, the 1968 Race Relations Bill, and what it took to stand up against some of the strong anti-immigration sentiments in the Tory party? Yes, I remember it well. Um, Enoch Powell had been health secretary, and during that time we had seen some of the most significant early uh, manifestations of immigration because he needed people to help man the health service. But um, he then was in a difficult position with the, his position in the Conservative Party. And uh, Ted Heath um, was the leader. We were in opposition at the time. When the Labour government of Harold Wilson introduced legislation to outlaw prejudice uh, on grounds of colour, class or creed, uh, that was a Labour proposal, the Conservatives... Um, had to decide what to do. And Enoch Powell was very clear. He wanted them to vote against that legislation and made the Rivers of Blood speech uh, coincidental with it all. Um, Ted sacked him, quite rightly so. But I remember the upswell of opinion in favour of Powell at the time, which was very nasty. Uh, I was totally opposed to it because I knew what was going on. I knew because I had a small hotel and because I had a small employment agency. And I knew that there was sheer prejudice uh, on grounds of of race uh, and it was unacceptable. Um, So um, uh, I I attacked Enoch Powell and have consistently done so ever since. I happen to think this country today is one of the most civilized uh, examples of racial harmony anywhere on earth. Um, and and whilst nobody would pretend everything is perfect because it isn't, but if you compare us with virtually every other country, we have a remarkable record of assimilating people from different backgrounds and different club bases into the totality of our community and we're the richer for it. Um, That doesn't mean to say you don't control immigration, you have to, because we can't carry the sort of weight of numbers that would otherwise come here for the most obvious reasons. We are so prosperous compared with sub-Saharan Africa and parts of the Middle East that, of course, young, energetic people want to share in that, and therefore they head this way. Uh, and I have no doubt at all that this is not something that we as a nation-state can control ourselves. We should be doing it on a European basis, and we should be doing it in a two-party way. First, we need to control the frontiers, and we should help the best of Europe control the frontiers. Secondly, we should have a much more... Um, uh, wealth-orientated aid program in order to help create the conditions of prosperity in the countries from which the immigrants are coming. Um, uh, the, the, the model for that is the Marshall Aid Program of America towards Europe after the Second World War. Yeah. And the idea being that you kind of create or you remove, I suppose, the pull factors for people to come you know, to the UK because they have prosperous and, and healthy and fulfilling societies in which to live, whether it's in sub-Saharan Africa or the Middle East or wherever it might be, and they don't necessarily feel that economic desire for economic migration to the UK. Of course. Um, 
on the you know, and it's, it goes with that saying that the the Tory Party has made a lot of hay, a political hay rather, on this issue of migration. And you know, you obviously have to look at Brexit, the constant you know pledges to reduce migra- net migration to the tens of thousands rather than the hundreds of thousands per year on every electoral manifesto since 2010, um, and obviously Brexit as well in the 2019 election. You you say it made a lot of hay. I look to see the Tory party standing in the polls today. I'm not quite sure hey is the way you would describe it. Yeah. So uh, it, it's obviously interlinked with this question of, of Brexit, though, right, and, and that whole line of taking back control of your borders, et cetera. And you've long been a prominent conservative Europhile or supporter of Europe and arguing that Brexit was a grave mistake and that it was more about migration and, I suppose, anxiety around you know multiculturalism as well than economics or national sovereignty, um, and that you hope that Britain may one day rejoin the EU. So could you talk a bit about why you are such a strong supporter of the European project and Britain being within there and a leading member of the EU, and what some of your formative motivations for believing in the European project were? Um, I think you mentioned you know, growing up in the shadows of, of World War II and having memories of, of the Blitz in London even, right? Well... it's not rocket science. If you look at the history of Europe, it is one of bloodshed. A thousand years in which uh, every manner of reason was provided as to why the young generation should be sent to die because the older generation couldn't sort out their problems. Um, My own lifetime, of course, was created during the Second World War, just before the Second World War. And uh, the the feeling in Europe at the end of the Second World War was absolutely overwhelming. We can't go on like this. This is the third time, Franco-Prussian War, First World War, Second World War. Each time the figures get worse, the numbers dead get larger, and um, there has to be a better way. And uh, from my point of view, of course, this was articulated by Winston Churchill in his great speeches to, at The Hague and Zurich and the Royal Albert Hall, in which he said, we must create a kind of United States of Europe. He didn't say they must create, he said we must create. And from that moment on, one saw the way in which this country's history evolved. Uh, we couldn't keep an armed presence in the British Empire, trying to suppress the instincts for nationalism of the people there. The imperial days were over, and it was a, the great vision of Harold Wilson who explained all this to the, to the um, British people. Uh, well, his attempt to join Europe was vetoed by de Gaulle, but Ted Heath then took us in. Now, these were the leaders of my party when I was becoming active in the party. My days at Oxford, all characteristic to the same sort of mood. Um, So I have, all my political life, I have worked for Tory leaders who told me that Britain's destiny was in Europe and who consolidated that position. No one more so than Mrs. Thatcher with her single European Act. Um, So what am I supposed to say? I was wrong. They were wrong. History should be rewritten. Well, I'm not prepared to do that. Mm. And I'm doubly not prepared to do it because I actually do understand why Euroscepticism is where it is. 
and how it's being exploited and who it's being exploited by. And I know that it is an unscrupulous use of human fear and human resentment in order to pander to racialist attitudes which lurk beneath the surface and which I have seen so many times in my life, but also which I understand to have played such a devastating role in human relationships throughout history. So, no, my party may have moved, but I'm not moving. And I believe that the party will come back to its European stance. Um, it, I think all parties will move back that way, actually. Well, I say all parties, all serious parties. Um, at the moment, they are frightened. The, the political parties are frightened of the, uh, uh, the, the extreme right argument about race. Uh, and so at the moment, the issue is, is, is kept out of sight. But it won't remain there. And after the election, I think we will see concerted moves to recreate a better relationship. I mean, it's preposterous that a younger generation growing up on the fringe of Europe, part of Europe, every day a relationship about Europe, and yet the one country of substance that, that we undoubtedly are is not there at the councils of Europe. We don't play a part in it all. Mm -hmm. And that is going to be increasingly frustrating to a growing generation of young people. Mm. And I, I did do a bit of reading on on Churchill's remarks about the question of Britain in Europe, and he often said that you know Brit Britain has to be at the table because otherwise it would be dwarfed by the superpowers of of the United States, of Russia, of China, I believe India as well, and and the European Union. These five you know superpowers essentially, and and, and well, you, know, you used in the speech. Not rocket science. No, no, and well, I mean, it is in some ways because you, you brought up the example of the European Space Agency is a great example of how Britain could play in space technology, and we see how important that is today with you know satellites, but also the emerging domain of conflict as well. But you know, Europe's sorry, the United Kingdom's um, space industry is not alone, not sort of well resourced enough or uh, dynamic enough to sort of compete with the United States's, you know, NASA, SpaceX, etc., Blue Origin, but also the European Space Agency and the work that the, the 27 European countries do together and the way that they can kind of, um, you know, amplify their resources and, I guess, technological uh, horizons as well. So if Britain's not part of that, then how can, you know, sort of, it's just an illustrative example, frankly, of, of the way in which Britain might be stronger with its European partners than sort of going it alone on every single issue. Well, of course, that the European Space Agency was I helped to create in the 1970s was an example of my indoctrination. I, I remember being asked to subsidise a British project for six million pounds uh, to compete more effectively with France and Germany. And I asked before I did that. I said I'd like two quick figures: one the total European spend on space and the total American spend on space. And the figure for Europe was 200 million, America 1.2 billion, six times as much. And I said to my officials, this is toy town. We must create a European mm. space agency. And that would give us at least a chance of being able to compete at some sort of scale with the Americans. Now, of course, you have 
China and India will be there as well. Yeah. And so coming towards the end of the interview, we're coming to what looks like the end of 13 years of Tory rule in Britain, with the polls showing a thumping Labour victory in the works. The country does seem to be economically distressed, as you, as you mentioned, with constant rail and NHS strikes, economic growth outside London, and anxiety about migration and Britain's place in the world in the wake of Brexit. So what does a conservatism that works for ordinary people look like in the 21st century, such that it might be a path back to power for the Tory party after a period in opposition, which you obviously experienced when you joined the House of Commons in '66. Yes, I mean, I was one of 11 <laughs> new Conservative members in 1966, and uh, it, it was a, a very bad result. Um, uh, I hope, of course, that this doesn't happen to the Conservative Party this year, but uh, one can't look the polls uh, in the eye and not realise that there are dangers ahead. But the Tory party is the most successful political party in the human in the history of human democracy. It will be back, and it will be back just as it was when David Cameron became leader, because it recaptures the centre ground. Mm. That's what it will do. It's what it always does. And uh, um, I hope to live long enough to see it happen. Mm. So, finally, we started the interview talking about gardening which I think is a great metaphor for life and also public service. Looking back on your life and career in its entirety, what advice would you have for students here at the Master of Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government who may wish to create a, a life or a garden like yours full of interesting flower beds and hedges and, you know, sort of uh, cameos in, in, in politics, in business, in, in civil society and all the different things you've been involved in? I never give advice to people I don't know, because it's preposterous. How do I know what to say to people? About, I know nothing about their attitudes, their skills, their energy. Mm. Uh, but what I do say, do something that makes you look forward to Monday morning. Mm. Because the most depressing thing I can think of is to have a job which, oh God, it's Monday, how awful. Yeah. I have never had that feeling. To me, Monday has always been a new beginning. And so, do what you enjoy. Do something that you believe in. Do something that makes you look forward to Monday morning. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Lord Heseltine. It's been a real honour to have you on the Oxford Policy Podcast. Great pleasure. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.